Welcome to the preaching podcast of Life Point Church. We're so glad you've joined us here. If you're ever in the Baton Rouge area, please stop by. We'd love to meet you. For more information on our church or Pastor Donovan, please visit our website at golifepoint.com. We are now going to jump into our Bible study. Let me say a prayer. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would speak to our hearts tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. We're in Revelation Revealed. This is part 12, chapter 6, part 2. I want to do some review and introduction, and then we'll jump into where we left off. But I've got some stuff I want to cover with you. The book of Revelation, as you know, can be outlined by chapters, uh, chapter 1, verse 19. John is told to write down things he had seen, which was the risen Jesus in all of his splendor and majesty, things which are, which is found in chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches and all that they represent, and things which will be, which begins in chapter 4, where John was caught up into the heavenly realm, where the candlestick, at that time, he saw the candlestick, the menorah, which signified the church. It was in heaven at that time. And in chapter 4, we, we saw things that would take place after the rapture of the church, this heavenly perspective. In chapter 5, we get a glimpse of heaven, how nobody was worthy to open the scroll, which was the earth lease or the title deed of the earth, and it, all that it represented, the authority and power. Nobody was worthy to open the scroll except for Jesus. What the first Adam lost, the last Adam reclaimed. And then in Revelation 6, uh, the opening of the first seal releases the Antichrist. And we talked about how the devil thinks that he's running the show. But the truth is, the devil's greatest weapon against God, the Antichrist, can't even be released until Jesus Christ opens the seal. So he thinks he's in control, but really God's still calling the shots. And you think your problem's too big for the Lord. I'm telling you, he can handle your problem, no matter how big of a problem it may be. Scott Wesley Brown used to sing a song back in the early days of contemporary Christian music, and it said, if he carried the weight of the world up on his shoulders, I know my brother that he will carry you. And it is the truth. And we looked at how the Antichrist can't be revealed until the church is caught away. Harpazo. That's, that's us, raptured away. We are a force to be reckoned with, filled with the Holy Spirit, walking in the Word, walking in faith, and restraining the revealing of the Antichrist, holding him at bay. The first horseman of the apocalypse is the Antichrist. We saw that last time. He's released immediately after the rapture of the church. And in his wake, he leaves war, famine, and death. But check this out. It's not like the world was wanting war, famine, and death. It's not like that's what they were seeking. The world was seeking peace or will be seeking peace. They're looking for an end to conflict. They're looking for life. 
So the Antichrist rides in promising peace as the Sar Shalom or the Prince of Peace. But he's not the Prince of Peace. He's a counterfeit. He's not the Christ. He's the Antichrist. We know his modus operandi. He promises peace. He promises happiness. Just do this. Just drink this. Just smoke this. Just go out with this person. But the end is misery and nothing changes when it's on a geopolitical global scale. He's still promising one thing and delivering another. It's bait and switch. So the Antichrist rides in on the promise of peace as a unifier, but in the end, he's going to bring division and war and famine and death and destruction. Daniel 8.25, which talks more about the Antichrist, and we're going to look in even more depth at the Antichrist, but Daniel 8.25 says, By peace, by peace, he shall destroy many. Now, there's a parallel that we looked at back in our study in Genesis that really is worth mentioning here. I don't want to waste time, but I feel like this is a worthy mention. We, we saw this in Journey Through Genesis. Notice Genesis 10, 8 through 12. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And it goes on and it mentions some other cities that are associated with him. Nimrod, if you'll remember, means rebellion. And he was a hunter, but not a hunter of animals. He was a hunter of men. Hunters use camouflage, strategy, cunning, trickery, traps to catch their prey. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks like uh, uh, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he may devour. Jesus said of the devil in John 8, he's a liar. He said he's a murderer. In John 10, 10, he said, and this is, again, John, the same writer who wrote the book of Revelation. John quotes Jesus, The thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But the devil is clever, he is stealthy, and you don't necessarily know he's there until it's too late, and he's, he's gotten you. Nimrod led the first rebellion after the flood, and he was a conqueror, he was a tyrant, he was the world's first dictator, and he led a rebellion, a worldwide rebellion against the God who had just flooded the earth. And, and he even headed up a religious system. And according to some rabbinical traditions, Nimrod claimed that the God of the flood was an evil God. And he led a revolt against him. Nimrod demanded loyalty from his subjects. He employed astrologers and by arms or by arts, he seized control of humanity. He was a descendant of Ham which on the surface there was a prophetic word from Noah that said there was this curse and he was to be subject to the other lines, the other people groups. And so to preempt this, the rabbis say he set about dominating them. The rabbis say one of his most loyal subjects was a man named Terah. 
And Nimrod was afraid of the Genesis 3.15 prophecy that we've looked at so many times. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And the rabbis claimed that a bright star began to shine over Shinar, and his astrologist began to study it. And he became paranoid that the star was an indication that the seed of the woman was about to be born. And so he began killing all the newborn sons in the kingdom. Now this was long before the coming of Jesus and long before the star over Bethlehem and the Magi that we know about from the New Testament. The bottom line is this. Terah went on to have a son and because of Nimrod hid him from this tyrant king and the name of that son was Abram. And Abram, as you know, became the father of the faithful. And Christ, Jesus, is the seed of Abraham. Galatians 3.16 says this. And Galatians 3.29 says, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So in Genesis chapter 11, we see the first four verses. I won't read it, but... Basically, the whole earth was of one language and one speech, and they built the tower of what? The tower of Babel. And that tower of Babel, you've got this, this, in that narrative, you've got one language, one speech, one world government, globalism, humanity saving itself, which was the purpose of the tower to make it high enough to where at least some of them could survive another flood. Does that sound familiar, this idea of one language, one speech, one world government, globalism, humanity saving? Nimrod was a prototype of the Antichrist. Interestingly, Nimrod's actions were not necessarily seen by his followers as a rebellion against God. Rather, they were seen as bringing people together, uniting people under a common flag of common humanity, for the sake of peace and safety. It's a perfect parallel to the Antichrist, along with the rise of a one-world government and a religious and economic system. It's the spirit of Antichrist. And 1 Thessalonians 5.3 says that when men cry peace and safety, speaking of this man of perdition, sudden destruction is coming. Are you with me? There's just some more Antichrist stuff, and we've got a whole lot more coming. Now, I find this interesting, too. Although they wanted at the Tower of Babel, if you read it, it says they wanted to make a name for themselves. Nimrod is not even a name. It's a title. It describes the character of this guy, a rebel. So Nimrod and his cohorts never got that great name that they were after. And you know what? They never will, and neither will the Antichrist. But I know a name that is higher than any name, the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Kings and kingdoms will pass away, but that name, that's a forever name. So now back to Revelation. In the opening of the second seal, We see that war is released on the earth, which makes sense coming on the hills of this worldwide dictatorship under the Antichrist. So the first seal releases the Antichrist. The second seal releases war. Look at 
verses 3 and 4. Are you with me? Isn't this exciting? It's great to have my mother-in-law down here in Prairieville. I'll stop saying it probably after Sunday. But she has moved. She's got a house. And we are so glad that she is here. Verses 3 through 4. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. And that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. So the Antichrist comes on the scene promising peace. But his end game all along is to take peace from the earth. And that the people of the earth should kill one another. Guzik says since World War II, there have been more than 150 wars of some kind in this world. And at any given time, there may be some three dozen armed conflicts taking thousands and thousands of lives somewhere on the earth. Not to mention the economic cost year after year where trillions are spent in military budgets, the cost of doing war. And then with the opening of the third seal, so that's the second seal, the opening of the third seal comes great famine. And again, it only makes sense. You have a world dictator. You have war. And with war, you have shortage. You have scarcity. You have famine. Look at verses 5 and 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. Balance scales. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Now, notice, there's this careful measuring, this rationing of food. And the reason why is because it's scarce. There's a famine. The prices here are many times the normal price. And, and, And some say it means that a day's wages, that's what you would pay for a loaf of bread or for a few pieces of bread. Think about that. Just living your life reduced down to just trying to get some bread. Walford says this describes a time of famine when life is reduced to the barest of necessities. Now listen, we already have trouble on the earth. The United Nations estimates that one in ten people in the world today, or over 800 million, live in chronic malnourishment. That's less than 1,800 calories a day. Almost all of them are in developing countries. Again, uh, 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 undeveloped countries, developing countries. Again, conflict is a major driver of hunger. The UN estimates 489 of the 800 and so million undernourished people and 122 million of 155 million stunted children live in countries affected by war. An estimated 17 million children under the age of five worldwide suffer from severe and acute 
malnutrition, also known as severe wasting. What a terrible name. Yet only 20% of severely malnourished children have access to life-saving treatment. However, as bad as all of this is, fewer people today suffer, percentage-wise, from hunger than 100 years ago. However, with an unprecedented war coming on this planet, it would not take much for that kind of scarcity and inequity that's mentioned in the third seal to become widespread. Death. Scarcity. And that really takes us into this next, this next seal. There's a pale horse, the fourth seal, that is unleashed on the earth. Look at verses 7 and 8. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beast of the earth. This says that a fourth of the world will die with the opening of the fourth seal. Now, if we were to take that number literally, that's 1.9 to 2 billion, somewhere in there, people. That's a lot of humanity. Two billion people would die with this seal. Now, some say, and I've got to throw this out, that the number is just symbolic. Like the 24 elders, which represent the believers of the Old and New Testaments. And so, maybe it's representing the fact that not all, but a significant amount will be affected. But there will still be people left. And and here's what's amazing to me about it. The seals that are being unleashed here, the Antichrist, the war, the famine, the death, they're they're called the wrath of the Lamb. Think about that. The Lamb of God. Now listen, what I've taught so far is that at this point, the church has been raptured out of here. Now, if this is all coming on the earth when, when the earth is raptured out of here, I want to make it on, on that train. You know what I'm saying? This train is bound for glory. Like, whoo, whoo. Like, I want to get on board, little children, and miss all of that. I mean, don't you? I mean, that's why people get ready. Jesus is coming, you know? You want to be out of here before this stuff is unleashed. But this is called the wrath of the Lamb. The meek and mild, Jesus, lowly. But the, in the New Testament it says that he's coming back with judgment. And, and he's coming back in wrath. This is describing the wrath of the Lamb. Two billion people wiped out. But, but think about it. That, it's hard to wrap our minds around the loving Jesus. And this is the wrath of the loving Jesus. But do you remember what happened with the generation of Noah? Everybody but eight people was wiped out. Do you remember what happened in the New People say, well, that's the Old Testament. Thank God we're under grace. We're not under law. We're in the New Testament. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. 
But in the New Testament, in the first church, Ananias and Sapphira lied about how much they gave in the offering. They kept some back and said, oh no, this is everything. I mean, they didn't even have to give any of it. I mean, technically, they should have tithed, given an offering, but they, they didn't have to, they did not have, they were not obligated to give everything, but they came in and they said, yeah, we sold this land for X amount of dollars, and, 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 and so here's all the money. And they really had kept some back. And do you know what happened? Simon Peter was used in the gifts of the Spirit. I did a Bible study today talking about the gifts of the Spirit with, with a fellow. And, and the gifts of the Spirit. I mean, wow, they're awesome. There are three that say something. Three that, say, that, that do something. And, and three that know something. Nine gifts of the Spirit. And the gifts of the Spirit were used in the first church with the great apostle Peter. And the end result was Ananias and Sapphira fell over dead. And we say, well, we want the gifts of the Spirit. You know? But in the New Testament, the gifts of the Spirit, in the end, Peter looked at Sapphira and said, you've lied to the Holy Ghost, and the same ones that hauled your old sorry husband out are going to haul you out in just a minute. And she fell over and gave up the ghost. Can you imagine? Can you? Man. I've been dealing with insurance, y'all. I told our insurance company that we do vacation Bible school. And you would have think we had a bomb in the church. They said, oh, here's 19 pages of documents you've got to fill out. I'm like, are you kidding me? Who has time for that? It's just VBS. Oh, we need these 19 pages. I mean, we're going to cover you. We... Can you imagine if I said, well, also the gifts of the Spirit move in our church and we've lost three people as a result. We've had three funerals. <laughs> it wasn't an error or omission on the church's part. It was the, the, it was the lamb. Judgment begins first at the house of God. And that's what Peter said. He went on. He had a revelation of judgment, trust me. And he said, and, and if, if the end, uh, if judgment begins at the house of God, think about those outside of the household of faith. So these are the ones that have rejected Jesus. And there is a wrath that is coming on this earth, y'all. Now, you don't hear too much preaching about the wrath of God, do you? Not anymore. We, we talk about grace, grace, grace. And listen, Amazing grace, how sweet this sound. But if you miss the grace train, you're going to face the wrath. You're going to face them one way or the other. You're either going to bow the knee voluntarily or you're going to bow, bow the knee under duress. I would rather bow the knee while I got a chance to say, Lord Jesus. Hey, amen. You know what I'm talking about? When the great apostle Paul was confronted by the lamb. Do you remember that? Acts chapter 9. He's, he's going persecuting the church and he is struck down there's this bright light that knocks him on his face into the dirt and he recognizes deity and he says who art thou lord he's a one god jew he says who are you lord and he says i am jesus 
whom you persecute is the lamb. He was saying, I'm one with my body. You mess with my body, you mess with me. And Paul would have become, Saul would have become a greasy spot on the road to Damascus. Valerie and I are going to take a trip to the Holy Land uh, very soon. I'm very excited about that. Been in the planning for years and finally is coming to pass. And, and, and uh, I would love, we're not going to be able to go to Damascus, but I would love if, if, if he had not repented right there, Valerie and I would walk down the road to Damascus and we'd say, what's that greasy spot? And they'd say, that's Saul. That's Saul of Tarsus right there. He would have become a greasy spot on the road to Damascus. But he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus whom you persecute. Whew. He said, it's hard for you to kick against me. I'm telling you, you can't kick against Jesus. Those paintings that I, I've talked about them before just drives me up the wall. Those Baroque paintings. Jesus and his pointy little toes. And he's all pale and pasty. Looks like a heroin addict. You know what I'm talking about. He looks like a wreck. He looks feminine. He looks awful. Looks like he's uh, whatever. And, 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 you know, I know he was, the crucifixion was brutal. But this is prior to that. And he looks all with that beatific thing. That's not how he was. He's not soft. He is hard. He is tough. You cannot kick. He said to Saul, you cannot kick and win against me. It will cut you to pieces if you, if you back up against me. You, you go to war with the lamb, the lamb's going to win. And so that's what's happening. That's what's happening. This is these seals. They're called the wrath of the lamb, which leads us to the next seal, Speaking of Saul persecuting the church, this fifth, this fifth seal deals with those who would die as martyrs. Now, this must mean that there are those who turn to the Lord after the rapture and die for it. Now, it's arguable. You could contest that. And you could say, well, if you knew and you lost your, and you didn't go up, uh, you'll never get a chance. So these are the ones that are born afterwards and didn't know whatever. I, I, I don't want to debate all that, but it looks like there are martyrs after the rapture. So look at verses 9 through 11. <clears throat> when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. First, let me stop right here for a second. Notice, I, I saw the souls of those who had been slain not for going to a building that's called a church, not for calling themselves Christians, not for people who go to a really hip, cool church, not for those who go to a real traditional high church but those who had been slain for the word and for the testimony to which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them. That's a robe of righteousness. 
And it was said of them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. This has some complexities in it. The fact that these souls were under the altar, though, is significant. It emphasizes that their lifeblood was poured out as a sacrifice, as an offering unto God. This doesn't take away from the blood of Jesus. The only reason they get the robe of righteousness is because of the blood of Jesus. But here they had poured out their own lifeblood. The idea is drawn from Leviticus 4.7, and he shall pour the remaining blood at the base of the altar of the burnt offering. It says that they were killed for the word. This could also be seen as the way it works with all martyrs. Martyrs have a martyr's cry. They died in defense of or for the sake of taking a stand on the word. My brothers and sisters, if you want to suffer persecution, and none of us really do, but we love Jesus and we want to please him, well then if you're going to love him and please him, Jesus said, here's how you do that. Obey my commands. If you're going to love me, obey my commands. And if you obey his commands, it's going to set you apart. It's going to make people not like you. It's going to put pressure on you to give up, to stop obeying his commands. And you will be persecuted. And the persecution will come for the sake of the word. To get the word out of you. To get the faith out of you. You take a stand on the word and watch what happens. And I know you know what I'm talking about. These souls in heaven cried out for vengeance. We usually don't think of God's people crying out for vengeance. But if you'll notice, they were crying to God. They were leaving the matter with Him. Did not Jesus say, did not the Lord say, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will avenge speedily. Guzik says, when God's people are persecuted, it is God who will set it right. It isn't wrong for God's people to ask Him to do what He promised to do. In this way, the blood of Abel cried out from the ground for vengeance. Back in Genesis 4.10, we looked at that. As did the blood of unavenged murders in the land of Israel. Numbers 35-33. It was said to them that they should rest a little while longer. These saints were instructed to wait. And how long were they to wait? Well, it says it until the number of their fellow servants, their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. And that could mean that they should wait until either all God's appointed martyrs are killed or until a set time. I'm not sure exactly where, where that takes us. But the fact is, the martyrs had a special place in heaven. They were recognized. Are you with me? The next seal is cosmic, the sixth seal. It's big. Look at this. I looked, verses 12 through 17, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded, as a scroll when it is rolled up in every mountain 
and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Look at that. For the great day of His wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Wow. Now, we'll pick this apart. In the Bible, celestial disturbances like this are often connected with the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Zephaniah, and Jesus talked about such things. There's a passage from Zephaniah that says this, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. Joel 2, 10 and 11 says, The sun and moon grow dark and stars diminish their brightness, for the day of the Lord is great and terrible. Who can endure it? Those who regard these events as history have to greatly spiritualize them. One example is Adam Clark, who said this great earthquake was a most stupendous change in the civil and religious constitution of the world. If it, refers, uh, if it referred to Constantine the Great, the change that was made by his conversion to Christianity might be very properly represented, blah, blah, blah. But I don't think that's what it's talking about. I believe it's talking about cataclysmic events that take place at the wrath of the Lamb. Because listen, guys, in the end, everything's going to be remodeled. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And Jesus then will come again. The day of the Lord is referring to a time of judgment. There's the rapture. There's the day of the Lord, a time of judgment. There's the millennial reign of Christ. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. We'll dig into some of that stuff. I know it gets confusing and there's a lot of theories but we'll dive into it and dig into it. It's there for the taking, right? It's in the book of Revelation. we got to do something with it. But here's the thing. Again, I want to get out of here when Jesus comes in the clouds. The first time, he's not coming all the way to the earth. He's just going to come in the clouds, and we're going to rise to meet him in the air. We used to sing the song, There is going to be a meeting in the air In that sweet, sweet by and by. Anybody know that song? We're going to meet him in the air. And then he, all hell's going to break loose on the earth. I don't want to be here. I want to be gone. Do you? Why don't you stand with me right now? So as dark and gloomy as that sounds, here's the deal. The wrath of God was poured out on Christ. If you want to bypass all that wrath, just turn to Jesus, right? Serve the Lord, knowing in the fellowship of His sufferings and in the power of His resurrection. Because when He's your substitute, He's taken all the wrath you would ever need to take. But if you've never made Jesus the Lord, turn to Him as Savior, been filled with His Spirit, been buried in His name in water, then you're in danger of facing a judgment that is as certain 
as his first coming. Amen? But he's such a good God. All of us deserve that kind of judgment. But he made a way of escape. He made a way where there seemed to be no way. He outsmarted the devil, which is an understatement. Took all the devil could throw at him, turned it around, reconfigured everything, and brought out of it a new creation. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Amen. Can you lift your hands to him right now? Thank you, Jesus, for salvation. Thank you, Jesus, for a sacrifice. Thank you, Jesus, for a lamb. Father, darkness trembles at the sound of your name. Demons tremble at the sound of your name. When that man that was possessed with all those demons came to you, that spokes demon said, have you come to torment us before our time? They know there's a time of judgment coming. But oh God, we know that those of us who are safe in you, oh God, we have come into a rest and a peace and a comfort and a safety. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run in. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were blessed by the preaching of God's Word. For more information on our church or Pastor Donovan, or if you plan to attend one of our services, please visit our website at golifepoint.com.